You're listening to Ridecast, the podcast of the Widow Sons Ridings chapter. Any opinions expressed in this episode do not represent those of the Widow Sons Masonic Biker Association, UK and Ireland. You can reach us on Facebook at Widow Sons Ridings chapter, on Instagram at Widow Sons underscore Ridings chapter, on our website at ridingschapter.co.uk, and by emailing the show directly at ridecast at hotmail.com. Right, that's the housekeeping done. Kickstands up, on with the show. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Ridecast. This is Yaka, and uh, casting the pod with me today, my regular co-host, Gremlin. Good afternoon, live yet again from the Kremlin. And we also have Pigpen. Good afternoon, everyone. And here we are, episode two. Very exciting to be back again, recording with my brothers on episode two of Ridecast. First episode, very successful. I'd like to say straight off the bat, thanks to everyone who followed the links that we posted on Facebook and everywhere else and uh, listened to the show. We've, we, we got actually a lot more listeners than we were expecting. I think you guys will agree. I think most of them found us by accident. Possibly. I'm not going to say how many people listened, but let's just say we're into triple figures. So that's not bad for a first episode. Is that, is that two zeros before the actual next number? <laughs> That's it, yeah. There were six people listened. No, there's more than that. Um, we, uh, I've been on the analytics on the podcasting host website, and it shows which countries our listeners are in. And you might be surprised to hear that, obviously, apart from the UK, we also had listeners in United States, South Africa, Mexico, France, and Canada. So we're international. I thought there might, have been some, there might have been some from Russia when they thought I was live from the Kremlin. Well, I mean, if you're live from the Kremlin, then you're kind of, strictly speaking, our Russian listener as well as our co-host. Dark. Dark comrade. Um, Canada, quickly on the subject of Canada, I think I know who one of our listeners in Canada may be. One of our ex-Ridings Chapter members, and they, a, a chap by the name of brother, I should say, by the name of David Graham, Dub Graham, we called him Dub, he is a Canadian Freemason who came over to work in the UK a few years back and he was stationed in York. I think he was working for Net- Network Rail at the time. He's like a railway engineer guy. And uh, being a, a Canadian Freemason, he joined a local lodge in York and then joined our chapter of the Widow Sons. And he actually joined only a couple of months after I joined. So we were both new members of the chapter together. And he was what I call a proper biker. You know, he's one of those guys you sent him a text or gave him a bell asking if he fancied a ride. And he was on your drive 15 minutes later, raring to go. And he, he bought, while he was in the UK, he bought, I don't think he'll mind me saying, he bought an old dog of a Kawasaki VN16. It's a 16, isn't it? He bought a VN1600, which was a little old and tatty. But you know what? He rode all around Europe on that thing. Um, while he was in the UK, took advantage and went all around Europe and it never let him down. So Lucky shout out to on the Honda then. Oh, 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 it started early. Started early on episode two. Um, so yeah, shout out to Dub. Hello, mate. Uh, miss uh, riding with you. Say hello to the family from us. Um, also, and, and and just for reference, if it isn't Dub, you've just peed off whoever it was listening. <laughs> it might have been more than one. Who knows? Um, also, guys, twenty two percent of our listenership were ladies. So hello to all the lady bikers that tuned in and. Listen to the podcast. Well done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have appeal across all facets, I think. That's good to know, isn't it? Right then, guys. So, what do you say we get straight into the episode? Sounds good to me. 
Good, good. Yeah. Right. So um, for my first segment that I have planned on this episode, just to give you a bit of background, I've been doing a lot of um, surfing across YouTube, looking at bike stuff, just to give me some ideas. And being the, the nostalgic type that I am, I was watching lots of videos and reviews on 90s motorcycles. So I thought that would make an interesting uh, little segment. What if we talked about the best and most popular, the biggest selling bikes of the 90s? We'll go back into the 90s. Uh, so what I've done is I've made a list of the biggest selling, most popular bikes, the ones that I think made the biggest impact. And we'll run through them and talk about any memories we may have, anything that uh, we can remember about them, um, and, and run through and, and maybe pick our favourites. And I think, you know, there'll be listeners out there that have maybe owned these bikes, ridden these bikes, or dreamt about owning one. And I know... Oh, oh. Can I just Are we talking purely about sports bikes? Will well... Cruisers on there. Any adventure bikes? Well, in the 90s, Grimley, uh, Pigpen will tell you that in the 90s, uh, it was very much a sports bike nation. We were all buying sports bikes and riding sports bikes. So primarily, they are sports bikes. There are some sports tourers on this list. What about the Goldwing? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they were a staple bike, but they weren't, the, they weren't the, the bikes really that were selling the most in the 90s, I would say. But we can certainly do another section another uh, in another episode about any type of bike you want. We can pick a type of bike and talk about tourers, talk about adventure bikes, talk about, we'll do cruisers. We've got to do cruisers because we're all cruiser riders. So we'll have to do a cruisers uh, episode. We, we? we could talk about Harleys for... What thirty seconds? Fill a, well, maybe fill a minute. Fill a minute gap. Can well, I just say I have I have just typed in to Google best-selling bikes of the nineties, and what comes up? The Harley Davidson FLSTF Fatboy nineteen ninety. Let's start okay. with the Harley that became a cultural phenomenon. Be that you, Honda riders. Right. Okay. We'll 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 uh, we'll let you go. Go go with your Harley. Off you go. We're listening. <laughs> Well, it was the fat boy that was used in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And I think it's actually one of the motor motorbikes that Pigpen would actually like to own. What year did it come um, in? What year was that? I'm not sure when Terminator 2 was. It was, it was certainly late 80s. Uh, no, no it, I mean the, the, bike. 90s. the bike. The bike. Yeah. The bike. But the bike itself... Um, would have started earlier than the 90s, probably. And yeah, I mean, it was into... a revolution. So it, 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 if we take a look at this... Willie G. Davidson and Vaughan Beals from AMF in 1981 bought the company back. By 1984, they created a new engine called the 1340cc Evolution, better known as Evo, and the first Softail frame bike, the FSXT Softail. But Harley needed something to drop a bomb and create an explosion, so to speak. And after a couple of years, they introduced the Fat Boy. And we all know that that is probably the best loved bike in the world. It's very, 1990. very 1990, the Fat Boy came out, did it? Yeah, yep. since, it's since a... its debut in 1990, Fat Boy. They are fantastic looking Harleys, aren't they? I mean, I'd, yeah. I'd, have, I'd have one tomorrow. Yeah. So they were, what, did you say 1340? That's what it started as. Or, or, that's quite or the small. Engine, but that's quite it small, is, but the, it? the new Fat Boy that's just come out is, um, I, would, I think it's probably a 1745, which is the same as my Deluxe, and it's a 114, um, which is... The new model and they're still making them and they are incredible motorbikes very nice lots of and the sales sales were increased after it was 
you know, showcased by Arnie Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2. I, I'm sure that if you include American sales, then absolutely, yeah. positively, the Harleys are going to probably outsell everything. Yeah, but so I think perhaps we need to classify from the beginning. What you're saying is just UK. more bikes, Japanese bikes in the UK. Well, there was, there was a, a, a non-Japanese manufacturer on my list, but Pigpen barred me from bringing it up. <laughs> Well, it wasn't a Ducati, was it? Uh, I, actually, there is a Ducati on my list, but we'll come. Let's not spoil the uh, surprise. Let's not spoil it. Let's not spoil the surprise now. So we, we, um, we started. We started with number one bestseller of the nineties. So let's move to number two. Hello there, everyone. Yaka here with a quick interruption. If you'd like to see all the bikes that we talk about in this segment, head to our Facebook page, Widow Sons Ridings Chapter. There's a post on there with a photograph containing all the bikes that we talk about in this list. Interruption over, back to the show. Well, these aren't in any particular order, I would like to point out. Um, no, these are, I mean, obviously being from the UK and having lived through the 90s, and that was my decade that I first got into big bikes and started riding the big bikes. So these are the ones that, that you know, I remember most and that were the biggest sellers in the UK. So let me get started. Unless there's any more interruptions, uh, Kremlin, anything you want to get off your chest before we crack on with the segment? I think we're all good right now. Right, you've got your Harley plug in, so let's move on. Right, so get ready to get your nostalgia hat on there, Pigpen. Um, my first bike of the 90s that actually came out in 1990 to 2001 was the amazing Kawasaki ZZR 1100, which was the successor to the ZX10, which wasn't a very popular bike. Um, they were trying to go for the Kawasaki were trying to take the fastest bike sort of record, the fastest production bike record. Can you remember what held that position prior to the ZZR? Was it a Harley? Nope. Nope. No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think Harley will ever quite get there. Well, I've got, I, I've got a couple that I remember being sort of spoken about as the, the high speed motherships, you know, the big engine high speed bikes. There was the CBR 1000, which was definitely a, a sports tourer, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Prior to the Kawasaki's own model, the GPZ 900, which was the Ninja, which was the Tom, in case you didn't know, the Tom Cruise Top Gun bike. He wrote it. Uh, yeah. Got you. The GPZ 900. And uh, that was uh, prior to the ZZR. It was like a, a grandfather to the ZZR. But that was clocked at doing 154 miles per hour, the GPZ. Flat out, 154 mile an hour. Whereas the uh, the ZZR was recorded at, I believe, 176, round about that sort yeah. of speed. Um, which, you know, when you consider it's only a few years later, after the GPZ, that's a big jump, isn't it, from 154 to 176. So bikes were really were getting getting fast. The, the ZZR, just, just for the nerds out there, the anoraks that are listening, 145 brake horsepower, 78 pound foot of torque. And do you remember this um, pig pen? Um, it was the first production bike to have Ram Air. Yes. To have what? We, to have what? Ram Air. Ram Air. What they had was they had. Well, unlike pig pen, who's got no hair. Keep going. <laughs> they had an opening underneath the headlight in the fairing that was like an air scoop. And as you, the faster the bike went, the more the air was forced into this scoop, which pressurized the air box. And, uh, 
generated more power, basically. So it was called Ram Air because it was ramming air into the airbox, basically. And it had been used, I believe, on MotoGP and probably the World Superbikes and that sort of thing. But this was the first one, first production bike to use a Ram Air system. So it was... Yeah, uh, the the sorry, GSXRs, GSXRs are a similar sort of thing. They had uh, air ducts yeah. on the yeah. side of the bike, what, what funneled air into the... Into the, the airbox, so it was a similar, a similar thing. But I think Kawasaki, like they, um, what's the word? They copyrighted it, didn't they? As Ram Air, the Kawasaki Ram Air. But yeah. Anyway, so um, oh, by the way, the just... first time that Ram Air had been introduced on any production bike, and it took the bike to two hundred eighty-three kilometers per hour. Not only that, it blasted through the quarter mile in ten point four three seconds. And this is, and then it says that but the ZX11 would hold on to the record for six years. Yes, and and that would have been the American name for it, the ZX11. In Britain, it was the ZZR11. Yeah, and and it was replaced um, by the ZZR12 in 2002. So they just upped the engine size slightly. Thanks for From that. From 1100 to 1200. Yeah, they just went up to a 12. Yeah. And was it still known as the Ninja? Uh, I don't. The ZZR wasn't known as the Ninja, was it? I don't think. I don't no. ever remember it be, having any ninja decals on it anywhere, but it was a beautiful coloured bike as well. I remember when they first came out. I tell you what I do remember. I would have been about 16 or 17 years old at the time, and it appeared on the front of Fast Bike uh, Performance Bikes magazine. They had the uh, one of the journos there, Mark, a guy called Mark Forsyth, testing it. And it was on a, I think it was on one of the airfields somewhere. It might have even been Elvington, although I couldn't. I couldn't was that say. Bruce's brother? Bruce Forsyth? No, it wasn't Bruce's brother. Higher, higher. It might have been Frederick Forsyth's brother. I don't know. But, um, yeah, that, they were an amazing bike. And I remember going in and seeing them in the showroom at 16, 17 years old and thinking, one day I will own a bike like this. <laughs> I thought they were just amazing. It was a very sports, sports tourer, wasn't it? It was, it was it definitely... It was it was amazingly slick looking and sleek and fast. I mean, yeah, it was it was beautiful, wasn't it? I, you know, yeah. Fond memories of the ZZR11. But thanks for doing the uh, speedy Google gremlin on that one. Yeah. That's very handy. Make sure you keep that up because that's I will. I more will. information than I've got on my list here. Right, okay, let's move on. This is an interesting one. This next one because this has uh, a little bit more meaning to us in that one of our members owns one of these bikes. One of our chapter members. The Yamaha FZR 1000 came out in 1987 uh, to 1988 was called the Genesis. And then from 89 to 95 was called the X-Up. Um, any ideas? Why an X-Up? What, what does X-Up mean? Right. X-Up was a Yamaha uh, servo-assisted gas airflow valve in the exhaust pipe. Have I said that right, Pigpen? Yeah, basically it was, a, it was like a restrictor valve in the exhaust that... Uh, sort of created back pressure. That's right, at low revs. That's right, yeah. And, and then, then would open at higher revs. Yeah. The faster it went, the X-up valve used to open up. It was a bit of a sticking point they used to seize. And... That's right, yeah. I read that when I was doing a bit of research that they could be problematic and they'd get carbon deposits and, and start seizing yeah. up. So, But I remember... I had a similar valve in an RD350 power valve. It was a similar sort of thing. And when you turned the ignition switch on, you'd hear that buzzing as it opened and closed, which was apparently to clean the valve off before you started the engine. Did the yeah. did the FZR do the same thing? Did it make that noise when you... Uh, I'm trying to think. I think it did because it was servo, 
servo, and a servo that would, yeah, that's right yeah yeah um so anyone know who in our chapter who owns one of these well i know mad max has just bought one hasn't he that's right yes he does and he's promised me a go on it because out of all the 90s bikes that's one of the only bikes i never got to ride was the yamaha sdr thou so he's promised me a go on it when he uh when he gets it up and running you have a little bit this had a, it was, this had an upside down fork um let me just which see. would become a standard feature for all bikes in this class going forward right there you go first upside down forks brilliant mm. and it was the first production bike with the delta the yamaha delta box frame as well oh and another interesting fact five speed box only five gears which must have been bizarre because you know all bikes had six six gears well all the bikes i rode did obviously in the 70s it might have been different uh 136 brake horsepower 78 pound foot of torque and was the can you remember what the fzr had replaced pig pen what had been its predecessor uh, just out of interest i've got it written down here no i'm trying to think what it was it was the fz 750 which were weren't a they weren't a pretty looking bike were they the the fzrs were much nicer looking um yeah but yeah, the, yeah with the, the red, white, and blue colours, the twin headlights—they were lovely. The uh, the Genesis and the Exit bikes—they went to a single headlight later on, didn't they? Single yeah. source square headlight later on. Anything else you yeah, wanted no. to say about the FZR? Any memories about the FZR? Because they were a slightly before my time, really. They'd they disappeared off the scene, really uh, quite early. I mean, they did carry on till '95, but people were, there weren't many people buying and riding them in the in the 90s i don't think there was a few in the early 90s but you did see him around yeah no i remember a, a friend having one uh and it, it it was the you know the very stereotypical red and white yeah red white and blue yamaha not much blue yamaha. mainly red and white yeah red and white with like yamaha's colors in them days and yeah i, I always remember it it was a pretty Formidable. Bike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it just looked pretty. Yeah, very slick. Another slick bike. Right, okay. Moving on to my next bike. And this was a explosion on the scene in 1992, this bike. We are on to the Honda CBR 900 Fireblade, which ran from 92 to 2003. And I don't think we can overstate the impact this bike had, can we? The Fireblade? Yeah. It was uh, because it was such an amazing bike at the time. They, they what what Honda had done is they wanted to they wanted to blow the FZR out of the water, didn't they? They wanted to take over and be the top selling sports bike. So what they did is they they took a a, a 900 cc engine, put it in basically a 600 cc frame, um, and it was I mean it was 205 kilograms wet which was only two kilograms heavier than the, the CBR6. Now, to put that into, you know, compare it to the FZR, it was 34 kilograms lighter than the FZR. So we're talking a super light bike with masses of power, 110 brake horsepower. Um, incidentally, by 2000, the engine had reached 150 brake horsepower. So it was super powerful, super light. How popular were Hondas with sports bikes before then? What was the, um, the, the the main sports bike that Honda had brought out before the Fireblade? I mean, it would have been the CBR thousand, wouldn't it, and the CBR six? There was that. I think I think the Fireblade was always intended to beat Suzuki. 
Suzuki yeah. had the GSXR 750 and, and 11 as well, didn't they? Yeah, well, they set off with the 750 and the 11, which was in the slab side. Yeah, the slingshot. slingshot, yeah, yeah. Which was sort of like 85 slab side, 86, 7, 8, 9 was the... It definitely went into the 90s. They were definitely selling the slingshots in the 90s. My brother had one, and I'll remind you this. this could you remember the, this colour? I remember my brother opening his garage saying, look what I've got. He opened his garage up, and it was the black one. And it, imagine someone had got a spray can and just done a zigzag spray all the way along the bike in pink and a little bit of blue. And it was really garish. It was totally garish, but it looked amazing. And the, the slingshots looked like they were doing, you know, 100 miles an hour when they were parked, didn't they? They always yeah. looked so, they looked so cool, so fast looking. Well, the, but, the, um, the, the, the sort of E-Reg slingshot was like the first, it was sort of one of the first production bikes that took its proper look from the... Uh, from the racing bikes it, it was it was like a bike you could buy what they were racing it it was the rounded fairing you know it looked like you were you were on a proper race bike then uh, how, how expensive were these bikes back in the 90s yeah, that's one thing i didn't do was write down prices but i can tell you i i owned in 93 or 94 i owned a fireblade and I was only 23 years old at the time. And I was one of those young looking 20. I mean, when I was 23, I probably looked 18 years old. And I was young looking. And I remember pulling up to Squires on my Fireblade. And it was the red, white and blue twin headlight, early model, K model, I think it was called. And uh, turning up at Squires, taking my crash helmet off and people looking at me like, what's that child doing riding, the, you know, one of the fastest bikes in the world? It was like you were a rock star in those days if you turned up on a Fireblade. Because right. they were very desirable, you know, a lot of people wanted them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they, they were amazing. The Fireblades were absolutely amazing. Oh, I'll tell you another another quick thing. Um, the Urban Tiger. Do you remember the Urban, Urban Tiger Fireblade with the fox yeah. eye headlight? Guess who's got one of those? Mad Manx. Mad Manx has got one of those as well. He's got the FZR Thou and the Urban Tiger Fireblade. So he's got a lovely little collection going there, hasn't he? He's just bought another bike as well. He's bought the Hayabusa. So, uh, yeah. You can only ride one at once. A Gen 1. Okay, moving on. We're, we're getting through these nicely. Um, you couldn't really mention the Fireblade without mentioning the CBR 600, which started off in 1987 uh, and came through the late 80s into the 90s. It's been on the go really, ever since. I think they're still making CBR 600s now, aren't they? There was a major change in 2003. But um, my brother owned one of the early uh, 80s F models. that We called them the jelly moulds. They had that enclosed fairing that had been based on the Ducati Peso. Uh, fully enclosed fairing, which meant you could jet wash them without, you know, risking getting water into the engine. Um, but the CBR 6s were super popular. They'd gone for a sort of in-the-middle sports tourer commuter did a bit of everything really it wasn't a, a, a balls out racing bike was it it was a bit of a sort no, of it was first first proper sports bike i ever rode was a cbr 600 was it and i bet yeah. you thought it was fastest thing ever didn't you hated it really yeah didn't didn't suit me i don't know what it was i didn't like it at all uh didn't have it long 
literally weeks. Yeah. And then uh, I bought a GSXR 750. Oh, that was a big, uh, big jump up then. Big jump up. Yeah. Yeah. And that was me. Then I was sort of hooked on GSXRs from there. But uh... they, the, the, the mid 90s CBRs started using the Ram Air system as well. And just out of interest, 85 brake horsepower I have here, 44 foot pound, pound foot of torque. So they had a lot of usable energy. They were a comfy bike. I owned one. I owned a CBR6. My brother owned a couple, couple of them. Did you know, um, out of interest again, that, you know, in, uh, in the UK, the CBR900s were called the Fireblade. In America, the CBR6s, it's never, never came to the UK, but for some reason, in America only, the CBR600s were known as Hurricanes. Right. So yeah, the CBR600 Hurricane, which I thought was yeah. pretty cool. Pretty cool sound. Because then there was a there was a branch off, wasn't there, where they did like the naked, uh, a naked version of the uh, CBR six hundred, which they called a Hornet. Oh yeah, and the Hornet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of the uh, naked, sort of street fightery type. Yeah, my uh, my stepson had one of those as his first bike after passing his test. He got bored with it very quickly. But they they were down tuned, weren't they, for a bit more usable torque for. Yeah, it was more more sort of commutey type. They type looked bike, a lot like the Bandits, didn't they? Very similar sort of it, look it, to it, the Bandit. It, again, it was Honda's. I think Honda's sort of take on on the, the Suzuki Bandit. What is it with Honda and Suzuki? Uh, <laughs> they always think, they're always battling it out, aren't they, Honda and Suzuki? Yeah, I suppose in the day they were the they were the ones, weren't they? They, they were the racing, the big sellers, the sort of racing boys. Uh, Okay, so from Honda, if I, if I can move on, we are now with um, the Kawasaki, back to a Kawasaki. This time, the ZXR 750 came out in 89, all the way through to 95. And one thing I, I'll remember about the ZXRs here, the ZXR 750s, was those bizarre looking vacuum hoses uh, yeah. that ran from the front of the bike through the near the tank. handlebars and into the top of the yeah. tank that fed the the uh, the airbox, and they were literally cut off a, a vacuum cleaner and and glued on. That was that's what they looked like. They they weren't. Yeah. I, I mean, some people love that look, I suppose. But what was your take on it, uh, Pigpen? Yeah, I I did like them. Uh, again, another friend, a couple of mates had them, uh, but you know they sort of seemed to be able to buy them new, and again. I did like them, but back in the day, it would cost, I suppose. But 104 uh, brake horsepower. I remember them being quite heavy, though, if I recall. Um, and another thing I've read about them, I don't remember this at the time, but I've read this in a few reviews that I've checked out, um, that apparently the back end uh, were rock hard. They had bad linkage and a very poor shock. So the rear end of the bike was very, very stiff, and it was a bumpy ride, apparently. So fine for a racetrack that was silky smooth, but on, on the road, not a comfortable ride, apparently. I think I rode one or two. I don't really remember. But um, but moving on from the ZXR, I just wanted very quickly to say that when the um, in 96, the ZXR 750 had a big revision and they changed it to the ZX7, the ZX7 Ninja, which I owned. Much many many years later, I owned a ZX7. I always wanted one. They had the huge air scoops either side of the headlight. They had they were they were using the Ram Air system by then, and and for me that was probably one of the most beautiful bikes of the nineties. I just thought that, again another bike that looked like it was doing hundred mile an hour when it was parked up. 
you know, you were either a JSXR guy or a ZXR guy, and the ZX7s look lovely. I had one in the green and purple livery. You know, the front end was green and the back end was purple, and it had like purple yeah. wheels. And oh, just just love them. And Chris Walker had uh, a lot of success on the ZX7s. And what happened yeah, to I did, yours? I, I... What happened to mine? Well, I, I didn't own it too long. I I bought it. I'm you know I mean I'm, I was going to come back to this story later because we you know it's it's relevant in in something later on. But very quickly I bought it, spent a lot of money doing it up, and then sold it at a huge loss. So that's the, <laughs> that's the story on my that's my ZX ZX7 story. But I did love ride, riding that bike. Did love riding that bike. Right. Yeah, well. Anything else you want to add to that pig pen? Not so much on the ZX7, just on about the ZX range as such. It was the go ahead, ZX10. Yeah, go ahead. ZX10 I always wanted. Uh, yeah, that was I the remember. forerunner to the ZZR, wasn't it? Yeah, we... No, the, the new... The new ZX10 Oh, the hours. new. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, right. we were... Uh, I remember we were going around Croft Circuit and they'd just come out of the ZX10s and... I was on a, I think I was on a GSXR 600 and my mate was on an NC 400 Honda. And, you know, we thought we're quick. Yeah. And I remember these two ZX10s came past us. I thought, I thought we'd both stop. <laughs> Time to they were going, going. Oh, they were going so quick. It was and I remember look, you know, going into the pits afterwards and having a look at these two bikes and thinking, oh, that's that's the future, is that? That's and now yeah. you know how I feel when I go riding out with you two. No, <laughs> we, we don't we don't go fast. Well, Pigpen goes a bit fast, but I don't. Uh, <laughs> right, okay, let's move on to the next bike. Now, this one is a massive departure. My net the next one on my list is not a sports bike gremlin. Wow, but but it's not a Harley either. It's not a Harley. Um, it's the BMW R1100GS, which was wow. out in 94 all the way to 99. And this one is what they classed as a dual sport bike, which later they redubbed as adventure bikes. It was the first real yeah. adventure bike. Um, the 1100s were very, very popular in the 90s. And obviously they went from the 1100 on, onto the, rev the rev revised to the 1150, which was the one used by Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman in The Long Way Around. Um, and then again, another revision to the 1200, which is one that I owned, and now the 1250. But they're, they're boxer engines, flat twins. Um, they were oil-cooled as well as air-cooled, which was the first change in the BMW engines for motorcycles since 1923. Right. They'd been using that same engine that long. Um, but here's an interesting fact for the nerds out there. Telelever front suspension, wow. which is basically like having a swinging arm on the front of the bike. So the forks, I don't believe the forks have any springs in, do they? They have this telelever system with a monoshock under, uh, at the front of the engine. So apparently the idea behind it is it prevents fork dive when un under heavy braking. Um, but there you go. So yeah, so that went from the 11 to the 1150 GS for the long way around and then the 12. And now the beautiful 1250 GSs. That are out there. What are your memories of the GS, uh, Pigpen? There was never a bike I fancied. It, it, it wasn't for me. And the, the only memories I have, uh, a good friend, we used to do a lot of enduro riding and he set up a lot of events. And we did one event up in Kielder Forest. 
uh, and it was it was called uh, the Kielder Rally, and it, it was for all the the rally bikes, and most of them were. This is pre when they changed them to the four fifties. Yeah, and it it was when the you know the Paris Dakar sort of rally bike stuff was any size they wanted, and there used to be a lot of uh, the 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 GSs there. And uh, yeah, there was a lot more of the GSs than any of the other. There were Larry looking things when they were doing 100 mile an hour on gravel. Yes, I remember you telling me that story a few weeks back. (laughs) Yeah, scary. Because there weren't the slick uh, KTM, you know, 900 and 960 things that KTM were producing. There were the big old flat boxer engines with the big crash barrier frames round and. Hewn out of solid granite, weren't they? Those yeah, things? just sort of a big old, <laughs> big old lump of bike. But yeah, uh, yeah. No, I was never, never quite into that ad- adventure bike. I was, I was more the sort of enduro KTM sort of yeah, bike. more lightweight, mm. more lightweight. Yeah. I, I, lo- I, I love the twelve hundred that I had, as as I mentioned in the last episode. You know, I got really into it, did a lot of miles on it, super comfy, ride them all day. I mean, to be honest, you can't, they're not they're not off-road bikes. You can't go scrambling on them. They're too heavy, you just sink. But you know, green laning is fine and a bit of gravel and that, you know, they can they can cope. They've got the knobbly tires on. And yeah, brilliant. I loved them. What are your thoughts on the adventure bikes, Gremlin? You like I the quite like them. I yeah. wouldn't have one, but I quite like them. Yeah, the Triumph Tigers are a, a nice alternative to the Beamers, aren't they? We've got a few, a couple of guys that have the Bobby's got the Tiger, Triumph Tiger Explorer. Yes, and there's a potential new candidate who's got the Triumph Tiger, the Adventurer. All right. Uh, okay, let's move on. Right, next bike. Next bike we've got on the list. Oh, this is a good one. You're going to like this one. It's not Japanese. Okay. Ducati Monster. No, the Ducati 916, 1994 um, to 1998. Now, this was another bike, a bit like the Fireblade. It uh, it really threw the cat amongst the pigeons. It was it was a follow-up to the 888. Now, really- it's my understanding that people with Ducatis had money. They were expensive, yeah. They were yes. Very, they were the Ferrari of the bike world. Yes. Fair to say. Now, these, just, just to give you a little rundown, big V-twin engines, 1,000 cc, well, 916, obviously, V-twin, fuel-injected, desmodromic engines, which I love, I love that word, desmodromic. And do you know who designed it? Oh, it, no, I don't. You probably have looked it up, have you? Massimo Tamburini. Tamburini. Everybody beats their Tamburini, don't they? Desmodromic then is the name used for an engine that uses uh, cams not only to open the valves, but close the valves. So instead of having springs closing your valves, it uses cams, which means the valves can stay open longer. Uh, and that's what creates that lovely Ducati Desmodromic sound that they make. So did they, did the they sell it in any other colour apart from red? Um, they black, did a, black, black, black and yellow. Yeah. Yeah, and they did, didn't they do like a charcoaly grey for the Senna, the special 916 Senna? It was like a charcoaly battleship grey colour, I believe, as well. But I uh, think I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure there was a bright yellow. Yeah, there was. The 748s, they definitely did in yellow. But yeah, you're yes. probably right. But the, who would buy anything other than the red? I mean, you're going to buy it. If you're going to buy a Ducati, you'd surely buy the, the, that red, wouldn't you? Yeah. But I they were beautiful. Yeah, but I remember not being a sports bike fan, but absolutely loving these Ducatis. Yeah. And I really wanted to own one. Tubular, tubular frame, yeah, single-sided yeah. swinging arm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was always, there was always that talk of, 
it was designed if you looked at it from the top down yeah it was meant to be like the shape or the outline of a of a lady of a lady yeah yeah i can yeah i think i think i think that was sort of meant to be its its look sort of thing with the, the the twin exhaust of the legs and then the nipped in for the seat of the waist italians know how to design cars and motorcycles yeah, don't yeah. They? i mean they look incredible but like you said the tubular trellis frame single-sided swinging arm also had the upside down forks and one thing that i always loved about them was those upswept under seat pipes that came you know those yeah. twin yep. pipes that came up and you could get those terminoni carbon cans that sounded absolutely incredible and this was yep. said to be the most beautiful bike ever made Apparently. Apart from the Harley Davidson. <laughs> you know, I mentioned this to Vicky and Vicky said, why? Why was it considered the most beautiful bike? And it's a hard question to answer. I mean, if you're not moved when you look at a Ducati, the same way as you might be moved when you look at a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, then I guess you've got you've got cold blood in your veins, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Of of its day, like you say, it was it was the Ferrari of the bike world. Yeah. What in can its you day tell sort us? Of thing. Pigpen, what can you tell our listeners about the dry Ducati clutch? The Ducati? <laughs> it, 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 that's, that's all he could tell you. I always knew when there was a Ducati around because it just sat there rattling itself to bits. But Yes, they sounded rattly, didn't they, on Tickover? Once yeah. they got moving, they were fine, but at low, very low revs in traffic and on Tickover, my God, the noise, the noise they used to make, it was like a bucket of bolts being thrashed about wasn't it? Yeah. it even even when we're on the track if there was any sort of if, if anybody turned up with one of them it was a very distinctive sound mm. there, there was nothing else what like nuts and bol bolts being thrown all over the track you mean no just i don't know it, it just had a, a very much a sound of its own yeah. even for that sort of twin like the you know the 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 millie was the different. same type of engine, yeah, but completely different sounding. Yeah. Never. That's because the the, the melee wasn't uh, a desmodromic engine. It's the Desmo that no. made that that sound. Isn't it just it? had a it had a very a very distinctive sound. Would you be it's surprised a, that by the end of '94, virtually every magazine hailed the 916 as the bike of the year? Yeah, they yes. were very popular. Wouldn't be surprised they're, at all. They're very expensive. 114 brake horsepower, 60 foot pound foot, yeah. uh, 194 kilograms dry. I don't know what they were wet. Probably, you know, around about 205 kilograms. Um, but also worth mentioning that they were the, the superbike champions in 94, 95, and 96. Carl Fogarty on the 916, and in 98, Troy Corsa. So it won the manufacturer in all four of those years as well. The manufacturer. It had that big, big following, didn't it? Because of you know, foggy. good old Brit fog, foggy on one sort of thing. It it, it became a, a bit met, of an icon. I, I met Carl Fogarty once. Yeah, I've charity, met him a couple of times. Yeah, charity ball in a Bolton one year. Nice chap, nice. Yeah, nice Yeah, it was very nice. Yeah. Okay, right, let's crack on. We're getting towards the end of this list now. Right, next bike on my list. This, this is a bit of a damp squib. I think some of you may agree. I hope I haven't upset anyone that owns one of these bikes. The next bike on the list is the Yamaha YZF 1000 Thunder Ace, 1996 to 2003. And why Took over from I... the YZF 750. It did, yeah. And it was it was the Yamaha's sort of strike back at the at the Fireblade, wasn't it, really? After after the Fireblade took over from the FZR Thou, Yamaha thought, right, well, we need to bring out something new and something to compete with the, with the Honda. And they brought out the Thunder Ace. And what do you think, Pigpen? 
uh, the old thunderclap. It was it was numb. Yeah. It was big, fat, numb. Enough slow. about you, Pigpen. Let's talk about the bike, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. It it, it was. It, it, yeah. No. It. It was an It was an FZR thousand engine with light and crank and pistons. It still had the X up in it, and they used uh, an adapted YZF seven hundred and fifty frame. Power-wise, it was pretty good. It was 145 brake horsepower, which was pretty good for the year that it came out, 96. 71 pound-foot of torque. But it was 232 kilograms, which, you know, again, 30-plus kilograms heavier than the blade. It was a big, a big lump of bike. Uh, I I remember sort of playing with them on the roads when we were, you know, just riding on the roads. And heavy. once Once they got going, they were... They were, they'd go, but they were they were big and numbing corners. Do you think, Pigpen, that Yamaha put the Thunder Ace out as as like a stopgap before they released the R1? They were still working and developing the R1, and they thought we've got to get something out more modern than the FZR because the FZR is a 1980s bike essentially. And they maybe yeah. thought let's get something out to sell um, while we're while we're finishing off the development on the R1. Do you th- or do you think yeah. they really thought it, it was a competitor? It was a competitive bike against the blade. Well, I think they must have done because development costs would have would have been millions. So you know they didn't come to it lightly. Yeah. But I, I think, uh, yeah, when you put the uh, the R one next to it. You, you do have different, chop different and cheese things. sort of thing. It was very quick. The Thunder Ace, as I remember, came out as a, as a, a you know, as, as the sort of flagship sports bike, but was very quickly sort of pushed into like the sports tourer category, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, because they, did they do the 600 or 1,000? They did the the, the the 600 Cat, the Thunder Cat, which is next on my list, so we'll move straight on to that Sorry. while we're on a roll. Yeah. No, that's fine. They brought out alongside the Thunder Ace, the 600 version, as you say, which was the Thunder Cat, which came out in the same year, 96, and actually continued a, a little bit longer than the Thunder Ace. The Thunder Ace was done and dusted by 2003, whereas the Cat continued to, to uh, along to 2007 and was actually sold alongside the R6 which seems odd that they carried on selling right. it when they had the R6 out at the same time. Yeah. I, again, I don't actually think I know anybody who ever owned one. No, no. They were, so I, I rode a few of them and they were the follow-up to the FZR. Uh, they were made to compete with the CBR 600, which wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be a genuine competitor against CBR. Although maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they, maybe they were bigger sellers abroad than they were in the UK. But they were they very they looked very much like the CBR in, in that they had the dual seats and they were they were more sort of bottom end power. They were low revving high torque engines, which meant they were great for commuting and town riding. I'm gonna but, say I think it was very much a commuter bike one yeah. it? it wasn't the sort of bike you saw on on track days, was it? No. No the CBR 600 seemed to get a bit of a following yeah. on the track day sort of scene. Uh, but yeah, that that really didn't... And, and I'll tell you another it. thing, the, the, the colour schemes were boring, weren't they? They did like a yellow and silver and a red and silver, and they were just really boring colour schemes. I mean, power-wise, 100 brake horsepower bikes. Um, and they were probably quite underrated, really, because they were very rideable, but they didn't uh, get any pulses racing at all, did they? No, no, it... Like you say, when they brought the R6 out and the R1 out, then all of a sudden... All bets were off. Yeah, people sort of sat up and listened, but I don't know. It, it, it wasn't a good stopgap between the uh, 
the X up and the, the R1. And the R1, yeah. Type okay, um, next bike. We're back to a mothership now, Honda. Back to a Honda CBR 1100XX Super Blackbird. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, 1996 to 2007, Honda's reply to the ZZR1100. And this became the fastest production bike for the next two years, topping 178 miles per hour. Any ideas what this bike was named after Gremlin? Uh, probably the US fighter jet Blackbird. The SR-71, the Lockheed. I thought they were British. Ooh. Weren't they British, the Blackbirds? No, they were American. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. The Lockheed SR like Harley Davidson's American. Right. Okay. Yeah. God, he's crammed. He's crowbarring <laughs> Harley Davidson every which way but loose, isn't he? But well, yeah, that's how they made into it with a crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what can we say about the uh, the Super Blackbird? Um, it was fast. That's about it, really. One hundred and thirty-two brake horsepower. Quite a torquey engine at seventy-eight pound foot. Two hundred twenty-three kilograms dry. Do you remember these came with the dual braking system? I think they were one of the first bikes that Honda used the dual braking. So you apply a little front, you get a little little rear coming on automatically and vice versa. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I wasn't a big fan. I, the whole bike, I wasn't a big fan. I, I remember riding one. Uh, it was big, it was numb, it was smooth, it was... Super it smooth of, Honda, big Honda yeah, engine. It was, it? It, it was very much typical Honda. It did what it said on the tin... Everything about it was almost boring. It, it sort of it was smooth and fast, but yeah. there was no. I don't know. It didn't. It didn't really scare you in any way. It wasn't. No, and the color schemes again. It was basically black or grey. Black, and that was pretty yeah. much it, wasn't it? You know, yeah. they did, I, I did like the look of the uh, the Blackbird. I thought they looked like they looked very futuristic. I rode one a couple of times. They were super fast. Um, they were basically a modern, um, an updated version of the ZZR11, though, weren't they? They were a bit faster and a bit lighter. Yeah. But if, if that's your thing, I suppose, you know, they were going to, they, they, like I say, they took over the mantle of the fastest production bike, but they didn't hold it for long, yeah. did they? Didn't hold it for no. long. Yeah, it was, it was in that era of you either had the handy, nimble racing sports bike or you had the, the mothership. Big, powerful sport looking but more touring sort of genteel more gentlemanly it's a motorway bike a motorway yeah, cruncher was, yeah you had the gentleman who who rode the 1100 stuff and you had mm -hmm. the, the lunatics the, that rode the nines and the thousands yeah, and the 750s and, and the, and the 750 type thing and it was very much that you know you sort of looked at them and thought yeah in 20 years 30 years time <laughs> yeah yeah you know I know what you mean. Right, uh, moving on. Uh, the next bike on my list, we we, we've, we actually scrapped from the list because we've decided that this particular brand could do with a, an episode all of its own. Because the next bike on my list was the Triumph Daytona T595, which came out in uh, 97. But we're not going to go into that uh, in any detail because, uh, yeah, I, Pigpen banned me from mentioning them. So he said, no, no, we'll talk about Triumph another time. So that's that's that. <laughs> <laughs> why well, well they, they weren't biggest they weren't big sellers were they they were i mean they stood out because they were different they they were the rebirth of triumph but yeah uh, they had a they had a following i think they still have a following there's you know they're still out there and you know unlike my harley davidson that everybody follows only on the back of an aa truck but anyway <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, there, there is a there is a big story to tell about Triumph because we've got the, all that history. They went quiet during the 70s when the Japanese bikes took over. Um, and this was their comeback bike, wasn't it, really, the, the Daytona? The, the, the earlier Daytona, yeah. the triple. I had the 900 triple um, and they did the 1204. But then this came out and this was like their new their new sleek tubular frame, single-sided swinging arm. The, they, they were... Yeah, they were a nice looking bike, but yeah, I did test ride one, a new one. Uh, yes, it was it was okay. I like triples. I mean, the thing about a triple is you've got the grunt of the twin, but you've got the power of a four. It's sort of a mixture of two. You've got the best of both worlds with a triple, haven't you? I like riding triples. Yeah, yeah. I, I still I still like the inline four, sort of high revving, screaming engines at that time, rather than. Yeah, I wasn't into that sort of triple or V or twin. twin. So you'd yeah. never have you'd never have bought a, a big Ducati then, big V twin Ducati. No, or the Mille. no. A, a, a good friend had a Millie, and I took that out for a ride, and I just couldn't, I couldn't get on with it because it's a different thing. I mean, you'd been riding yeah. for GSXRs round tracks for years. There's no way you're going to be able to adapt very quick. It'd take a long time to to change your riding. Yeah, style, you having to change gear so in such a different place you're pulling through the gears rather than yeah short shifting end. yeah short yeah. shifting and uh, using the torque out of corners and stuff but anyway we're not supposed to be talking about these triumph daytonas we will no, do, no. we will dedicate an episode or a, certainly a segment in an episode to triumph and we'll go through a bit of history right we're finishing off now we've got two more bikes to go and we're going to talk about them simultaneously to, to a certain degree because they're both the Yamaha. One is the, the R1 and the, the R6. R1 and the R6, yeah. yeah. What do you know about the R1 and the R6, Gremlin? Because they are later bikes and they still make them now, so you must have seen them around. Yeah, I have, because you think about there's two of our members that have R1s. There's Buzz and Compo. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Compo's got and a new the... Buzz has got a slightly newer model, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you think about it, that it was the R6 came first and then the R1 in the same chassis. So going from a 600 to a 1,000cc must have really blown the socks off quite a few of the other bikes out there. And it definitely was a big uh, big change to the Thunder Race, which the Yamaha fans had been riding prior to the R1. Um, and that another massive, the R1 had a huge impact, um, like the Blade had six years earlier. Um, very sleek, very small for a thousand cc. Um, they stacked the gearbox, uh, shortened the wheelbase, lowered the center of gravity, turned. It. I mean, it was a racing bike on the road. It really was. Again, still using the X-up system. It had the yep. upside down forks. At this point, early on, the early models were still using carburetors. They hadn't gone fuel injected just yet. But they had. Um, they were the first bike I can remember. Um, that used digital speedos, which I never was a fan of digital speedos. I like to actually see a needle rotating around a clock rather than a digital i could when i rode bikes with digital speedos i couldn't stop looking down at the speedo for some reason which obviously you don't want uh, 150 brake horsepower at the crank 129 at the rear wheel 72 pound foot of torque and only 198 kilograms so the r1 was a mega bike i mean it really what people could get into trouble with an r1 if they weren't experienced i still say it was it was yamaha's uh, answer to the GSX R thousand, which was out before that, right? And it was right. then playing. They were playing catch up. Yeah, you know, trying to trying to, you know. They uh, were competing against the Blade and the GSX R thousand, like you said. And and I yeah. mean, that is, I think it's fair to say they kind of took the mantle, didn't they? They took the the you know the sports bike sort of champion 
they took that sort of title, didn't they, really? Yeah, they had a big following at the time. I, I, I do remember at the time on my old 750 and quite a few mates were all of a sudden sort of jumping ship and buying the R1 because yeah. it was, you know, oh, it, it, it looked nice and shiny and sleek and it was a bit, quite a bit thinner than the GSX-Rs at the time. It was, I remember, one thing I remember, I mean, I owned the C, I owned the Blade and when you sat on the Blade, they had huge petrol tanks. So you looked down and there was yeah. this massive petrol tank, not on the R1. When you sat on the R1, it was like, it felt like you were sat on like a 400cc bike. They were just tiny, yeah. you know. And you were right, right the, over the handlebars, weren't you? Sat right over the handlebars. Yeah. I think the very first time I saw one was at the old Squires when it was down in the... Yeah. Uh, oh, in the village, in the village. In the village itself, near the uh, near the crossroads there. And I remember this lad had a brand spanking new one and he had his girlfriend on the back and she was in like black leather trousers and black, you know, all, all in black, Steady. long legs. And she was just sat, she was sat on the back of this bike. And I just remember it. She looked like she was sat on nothing. Yeah. There, there, there was hardly any seat. It was just like this little pointy bit. Little shelf. It was, little shelf. Yeah. Sticking. Yeah. And I remember the, you know, last I had, I don't back of mine at times. She was like, well, you won't, don't be getting one of them. You won't be catching me sat on that thing. Yeah. And it, there was nothing. It, it was just, yeah, really thin, sleek. Like a 250. Sort of like, Looked like a 250, yeah, didn't it? Was, it? it was just like a, like a, it looked fast. Yeah, yeah. But, and they were, you know, weren't they? I mean, they were 180 yeah. mile an hour bikes. It were a quick, a quick bike in the right hands, but yeah. no. It and, was, and the R6, again, sorry, sorry, Pigpen, the R6 as well, um, a massive uh, explosion with the R6, took over from the CBR6, took over from all the 600s. I mean, the, R, the, the Yamahas ruled that market, the 1000 and the 600 market, didn't they? For a few, certainly for a few years. Um, they were in very, very close battle again with, with the GSXR, you know, that had the six, the 750 and the... Yes, because the GSXR, Suzuki brought the 600 out, didn't they? Which they had stuck to a 750 and an 11 and obviously the Thou. Yeah. But then they, you know, they started bringing out the 600s in this country as well as America, didn't they? So. Yeah, well, again, they had to compete with, you had the CBR 600 and you had, you know, they had the Yamaha 600s, so... You know. Oh, special mention as well. We've talked about slingshots, but I would like to mention um, the S-Rads that came out in 96. That was the next big development for Suzuki. Um, they were the answer to the Fireblade question I have here in my yeah. notes. 20 kilogram weight decreased to 179 kilograms. So the, the GSX-R 750 S-Rad was an amazing bike as well. So to our, very quickly then, to our listeners out there, have we missed anything out? Is there any bikes on this list that you think was a mass, massively popular, um, iconic 90s bike that we haven't talked about, that you owned maybe, or that you always wanted to own? Drop us a, an email if, uh, if you can think of anything and we'll, we'll mention it in the next episode. Okay, that was. Uh, I enjoyed that segment, guys. That was good fun talking yeah. about the bikes. A bit of nostalgia. Um, our yeah, our next uh, segment we have. Well, I'm going to introduce my co-host Gremlin, who's going to take over on this one. So, Gremlin, what's uh, what's the next segment all about? Well, if I read out part of a film script, it might give it away as a clue. The Holy Grail neath ancient Roslyn waits, the blade and chalice guarding o'er her gates. 
Adorned in master's loving art she lies. She rests at least at last beneath the starry skies. Wow. Now there's a big clue there. The film was The Da Vinci Code. Is that from the the book? It is. It's yes, it's the final clue um, that is given allegedly outside Westminster Abbey, but it's actually Lincoln Cathedral when um, what's his name? Lee T. Bing is arrested and taken away. And he says, Robert, you found it. You found the clue. And the clue who, who is... gets arrested and taken away? Lee T. Bing. Is that the guy? Is that played by Ian McKellen? Ian McKellen, yes. Right, yes, yes. I remember, yeah. yeah. So Robert Langdon has the clue, and it's about Rosalind. Rosalind Chapel near Edinburgh. Rosalind Chapel. So there you go. Rosalind Chapel is a remarkable and magical place. It's very big within the Freemasonry um, world. It, it, it links Christianity and ancient Celtic folklore and temporalism and Freemasonry. It was built by the latter William St. Clair and already proven itself to be hugely important because it was the construction of this edifice that provided the interface between the Templars and Freemasonry. Templar Knights. Just, just to add very quickly before we go any further, the reason we're talking about Rosalind Chapel is because we are planning a chapter ride there, hopefully sometime this year. We are. Um, Rosalind Chapel itself is not far from Edinburgh. And the history goes back to, as we say, to nine, uh, to, to when was it built? 16, 15, 14? 15, 14. So, yeah, it's 15, 15 14. or something. Yeah. But it was, it, it's quite interesting because it, it, if you take a look at the history, forgetting the uh, Freemasonry links with it, um, you know, one of the things they state about it was the Lord Protector who protected Roslyn. Perhaps the most remarkable evidence to support our view of Roslyn is that it is still there at all. During the English Civil War, Cromwell and his parliamentary forces Rhode Island, Wales and Scotland, as well as England, bringing damage to royalist and Catholic property wherever they could. Cromwell himself visited Roslyn, and whilst he destroyed every papist church he came across, he did not so much as scratch this building. The official line as told by us is that he was a Freemason of high standing and was aware that Roslyn was a Masonic shrine. And for once, we fully agree with the present caretakers that state that. So wow. Wow. What a story. So he was allegedly a Mason, um, and being on a war path, destroying yep. churches and, and decided that as that had Masonic links, yep. he was, he was going to leave it alone. Absolutely. Crazy. Well, just indeed. a quick, quick one there. 11th of September, 1456. There you go. Well done. That was well, when they broke, broke ground, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. That's what it's saying. Established. So. Right. Yep. Right. Now, for those of you in the province of Yorkshire West Riding, um, you will probably hear, uh, have heard the name Dr. or brother Dr. Robert Lomas. Now, I first came across uh, Dr. or brother Dr. Robert Lomas in the late 90s when a book came out called The Hiram Key, which was written, written by himself and uh, Stephen Knight. And uh, brother Lomas came to my lodge, Harder Lodge, and did this presentation of The Hiram Key. And it was fantastic. I mean, I've got the uh, book as a Kindle edition and it's extremely interesting. And, and, and from Dr. or brother, Dr. Robert Lomas himself, the origins of Freemasonry, a lecture given on the 25th of August, 2000, at the 5th International Conference of Great Priories at Alberts Hall, Stirling, Scotland. 
And what he states is about the origins of Freemasonry and where did Freemasonry start? Freemasonry in the form we would recognise today started at the building of Roslyn Chapel near Edinburgh. Um, there are three important pieces of evidence which support his statement. One, Roslyn links the Jewish temple through the Knights Templar to Freemasonry. The ground plan of Roslyn is a copy of Herod's temple and above ground it replicates the Herodian architecture of Jerusalem. And thirdly, Roslyn contains the oldest document showing a modern first degree ceremony being conducted by a Knight Templar. Well, I'll be. And there are, there are Templar Knights buried in the crypt. There are. There are, absolutely. But then you take a look at uh, alternative, you know, where did, or where was Roslyn Chapel? Where did it first appear in modern, uh, in modern history? Do you know, apart from the Da Vinci Code? No idea. Anything to do with Henry VIII? No. Batman. Batman? Batman. Go on. What's the story? Come In a comic strip, was it? Or... Yeah, it was. So, the chapel became the subject of speculation regarding its supposed connection with the Knights Templar of Freemasonry beginning in the 1980s. This part of its history was referenced in the DC Comics storyline, Batman, Scottish Connection, in which the hero Batman becomes caught up in an old vendetta between two Scottish clans during a visit to Scotland. This mystery, including the discovery of an ancient treasure trove hidden in Rosslyn. Wow. Uh, yeah. And wow. then, of course, move forward nearly 20 years to the uh, Da Vinci Code in 2003. You know, it, 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 it just turned everybody's attention to Rosslyn Chapel, those who were not in the Masonic world. And the visitor numbers shot through the roof because of this. And I think it's made it... Uh, was it was it a, a victim of its own success? They've had to put, you know, uh, I think there's there's ticketing systems now. You've got to make an a not make an appointment, but book a slot to be able to turn up. And obviously, more important now with with COVID and what will happen when they reopen, will you know how how will we go about visiting it? And that's one of the challenges we have this year with our ride out is actually going to Roston, booking in the time slot, and be able to spend enough time looking round. I remember when I went, because I went a few years ago, I remember the, the, they had a lady there doing the talk and giving the history. And she said, pre-Da Vinci Code, I'll probably get my numbers wrong here, but pre-Da Vinci Code movie, they were getting maybe, you know, the foot traffic of about 5,000 per year. And post-Da Vinci Code, it went up to like 100, 150,000 a year, something ridiculous. I mean, it, you know tenfold the, the number of visitors that were coming through there. But I mean, imagine the money they're taking because the ticket price for getting in isn't cheap. No, absolutely. It, 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 it probably would be very expensive. But, you know, what is the rumour about Rosslyn Chapel itself? Um, why is there this uh, mystique about it? And for those of, those of you who know the story about it and the crypt itself, if we go back to the Da Vinci Code, what was the Holy Grail? Well, it was the bloodline, wasn't it, of Mary Magdalene. And allegedly, there is something, someone, is it treasure? Is it the Holy Grail? Is it the sarcophagus that is buried in the vaults? And so far, the family, the Sinclair family, have never given permission 
for the uh, vaults to be opened up. Wow. Is it, is it, now, is it because there is something there and they don't want it found, or is it because there isn't anything there and they don't want the mystique to suddenly disappear? I think the movie has some story about the Holy Grail not being a cup that Christ drank from at the Last no, Supper, but it was no, the, the female bloodline. Yeah, Sangreal, as in blood, yep. Grail being blood and the, the Holy Bloodline, and that Magda, Mary Magdalene and Jesus had a child, and so it went down the Yes, pub. absolutely. And, and the secret is held in the crypts at, uh, at Rosslyn Chapel. But I mean, Absolutely. there are, I mean, I've been and there, there are, um, it's the most beautifully sculpted and decorated church I've ever been in. I mean, the, the masonry in there yeah. is absolutely amazing. I mean, there are forget-me-nots on the ceiling and the, yeah. have you heard the story about the apprentice pillar? Yes. Do you want to run through hey, that? Hey, Penn, you... Do you know the no. apprentice pillar? Well, the, the Apprentice Pillar story, as I remember it, and bear in mind, it's about four years since I've been to Rosalind Chapel, but the, um, the lady there, there that was doing the talk told us the story of the Apprentice Pillar. Now, there is one particular pillar. I think there's three or four pillars inside the church, but one particular pillar is very ornately carved. It's like, um, like almost like rope running around a cable toe, running around the column up to the top. Um, with roots at the bottom like a tree, some fauna at the top like a tree. And the story is that the person that uh, was paying, you know, that I guess the Sinclair family that were paying um, for this to be built had a master mason on, on, uh, on site that was doing all the ornate carving. And they asked for a particular style that was popular in Europe. They wanted a particular style of carving, sculpting on, on one of the pillars. Um, that the master mason wasn't that familiar with. So he had decided to travel to Europe and learn these techniques, learn this new style, come back and carve it and sculpt it into this particular pillar. While he was away, I mean, I guess in those days, if you travel to Europe and to study, you'd be away for a couple of years minimum, wouldn't you? Uh, yes. And the story has it that while he was away, his apprentice took it upon himself to begin sculpting this pillar. And during the two to three years that the master mason was away, when he arrived back, the apprentice had completed the pillar, made the most beautiful carving and sculpting that had been seen for years uh, by anyone around. And the master mason was you know, hugely jealous, very angry. How dare his apprentice show him up? So he took his uh, heavy gavel and uh, bashed him over the head with it and killed his own apprentice. Now, in a fit of rage, obviously, he was afterwards arrested, prosecuted and sentenced to hang or whatever was the, you know, the punishment in those days. Um, but as a, as a secondary punishment, apparently there are faces carved on the walls of the church. One is the, the apprentice that was murdered. One is the apprentice's mother uh, with tears streaming down her face. And the third face is the master mason who is carved facing the pillar so that he has to stare at his apprentice's creation for all eternity. Wow. There you, there go. you go. Now, if we move on from uh, Robert Lomas, who is, states that Rosalind Chapel is very Masonic and with the Templars, there's another one to state that it absolutely isn't. And... Um, there's a chap called Cooper, Robert L.D. Cooper, curator of the Grand Lodge of Scotland Museum and Library. And he has stated that uh, it's absolute nonsense, <laughs> and calls it the Rosalind hoax. 
Rosalind Chapel bears no more resemblance to Solomon or Herod's temple than a house brick does to a paperback book. Um, if you superimpose the floor plans of Roslyn Chapel and either Solomon's or Herod's Temple, you will actually find that they're not even remotely similar. Writers admit that the chapel is far smaller than either of the temples. They freely scale the, the plans up and down in an attempt to fit them together. What they actually find are no significant similarities at all. If you superimpose the floor plans of Roslyn Chapel on the East Choir of Glasgow Cathedral, you will find a startling match. The four walls of both buildings fit precisely. The East Choir, and Choir is Q-U-I-R-E of Glasgow, is larger than Rosalind, but the designs of these two medieval Scottish buildings are virtually identical. So there you go. As to a possible connection between the St. Clair's and the Knights Templar, the family testified against the Templars when that order was put on trial in Edinburgh in 1309. Historian Dr. Louise Yeoman, along with other medieval scholars, says the Knights Templar connection is false, and points out that Ros Rosalind Chapel was built by William Sinclair so that mass could be said for the souls of his family. It is also claimed that the other carvings in the chapel reflect Masonic imagery, such as the way that hands are placed in various figures. One carving may show a blindfolded man being led forward with a noose around his neck, similar to the way a candidate is prepared for initiation into Freemasonry, the carving has been eroded by time and pollution and is difficult to make out clearly. The chapel was built in the 15th century and the earliest records of free Masonic lodges date back into the late 16th and early 17th century. Mm. There you go. One well. for, one against. But it's up to everybody to make up their own mind. And that's the wonderful thing about, uh, you know, freedom of... Um, people's individual choices yeah so and it's the beauty there. of our fraternity is that we have it these mysteries so. yeah it is because that's what it's about a society with secrets rather than a secret society well said i still think i still believe it i do i well i like to believe it i mean there are definitely templar knights there and there's no doubt there are there are links from the templar knights to the to, to masonry as we know it now so open mind can i just ask quickly um, from a from a visiting point of view, um, I'm look. I had a little look on my uh, on my maps, and it looks. I mean, I've done this trip before up to Newcastle, and then A68, and that takes yes. us through Jedburgh through to Col Edinburgh. Yeah, Jedburgh, Coldstream, that way. Beautiful absolutely. roads, absolutely lovely yep. roads, and I guess we'll we'll stop in a travel lodge somewhere up at Edinburgh and have a night out, and then head down or to the Roslyn. <laughs> yeah, well, they might let us stay. You never know. But yeah, good good research there. Good information. Yeah. I enjoyed that. It's very, very much. interesting, you know, for people it, 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 trying to understand Ridecast itself. It's about motorbikes and masonry, um, the two two loves that we all have. You know, uh, is our Freemasonry, but also the motorbikes, and to be able to understand a bit about the Masonic history as well. Um, for those who of you who are Freemasons, um, what do you know about it? You know, write in. Do you believe all these? all these stories do we want to take over the world do we rule the world <laughs> all the usual myths and pop apparently um if you go back to the beginning of the pan pandemic in the uk where there was a bit of, of relaxation i think it was Piers morgan somebody actually went up to my shop and said it was a it was a masonic conspiracy it was the freemasons that had started covid they you know, blame us for everything nonsense. don't they yeah, we don't control everything. We just we just control the important things. We do. The best, <laughs> the best one was the uh, the Simpsons episode, wasn't it? Oh, the Stonecutters. 
Yeah, I yeah, think that yeah. has to be that's the a, iconic, that brilliant, isn't it? the that iconic parody. image of <laughs> yeah, the parody of masonry. Yeah. Yes, there we have it. The final part of the show, this is actually a new segment, guys, um, which I'm hoping will become a regular uh, a regular segment in the show. It's essentially what you would call email corner, um, where we discuss the questions, the emails that we've been sent in from listeners. So it's nice to get a little bit of feedback and a few questions and know that people are not only listening to us, but can be bothered to... Um, to send in a, a few questions, um, but I thought, what 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 are we going to call this? What can we? What <laughs> pig pen's messing with his graphics on his Zoom meeting now. He's got pig, a pig nose and pig ears. Anyway, how about we call it fans fans forum? Fans forum. Oh dear. Um, well, I was thinking I've got uh, some set up here that you might find amusing. I was thinking that we could could call it Yakas Yakety Yak. Right. Uh, I know it's a terrible name. Well, like yak, but... yak is a load of crap. <laughs> no, no. Yak is yakety yak. Do you want to hear my jingle? I've made a jingle. Not particularly. Right. We're well, going to hear it. Here we go. <laughs> Let me play it again. Let me play it again. Please, please stop. Okay. Okay. So we're not going to be calling it Yakas Yakati Yak. I was thinking, what about, um, as we're Masons, how about quarterly communications? Or is that just too numb, too boring? Numb and boring. What about Right Talk? Right Talk. We do a good jingle for that. Or do you know what we could we could actually do? Thinking about it, we could get the listeners Fans to forum. No, let's get the listeners to suggest uh, a title for us. We'll get them to send in what they think we should call our email corner section. The last time anyone was asked, asked to name something, they came up with Boaty McBoatface. So let's just see what you get back. With David this. David Plowy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so anyway, we have got a few questions here. First of all, uh, an email from Jason. Hello, Jason. Thanks for emailing the show. Um, What's his real name? He said that he enjoyed the show and that he uh, had a laugh listening to us all making fun of each other. But um, I'm not going to read first, out. First any... time, first time call, a long time listener. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm not going to read out any more praise, and because there's nothing worse than people reading out praise for their own show, so I won't be doing that. But what Jason has done is he's actually sent us um, a meme. It's basically making fun of the white wall tires conversation we we had last month. Um, so it's rather than try and describe it, if I send that across to you, Gremlin, can you stick it on the Instagram or I'll stick it on the Facebook page? Yeah, absolutely. From Jason. So thanks, Jason. Keep them coming. For those of you who don't know what a meme is, myself included, can you tell us what a meme is? It's a, uh, a photograph with some amusing text written over the top of it. Check out the Instagram account and you'll see what a meme is because uh, Gremlin's going to post it for us. Right. I have a message here from Alex. And this says, what is the most stupid thing you have ever done? I'm assuming this... I was just going to say, I'm assuming he means on a motorcycle. But uh, yeah, buying a Harley, I guess, for you, Gremlin. <laughs> no, mine, mine was actually dropping it on my foot and breaking it in three places when I was about That's to right. take my test. That's right. Yeah, we spoke about that last month, didn't we? What about yeah. you, Ben? Yeah. yeah, there's been one or two sort of memorable crashes uh 
<laughs> You've never ridden a motorbike naked or anything like that, have you? No, no, I have seen it. Uh, <laughs> no, we, we used to go down to the to the British superbikes every year, and we used to go down the for the night before there were a big party, and I, I do remember things like that happening. Uh, I think what's the silliest thing I've done uh, as a youth with living on a farm, I had a Honda XL 175S uh, and me and a mate decided it'd be good to uh, do some jumps on it. And one thing led to a, one thing led, yeah, one thing led to another. Uh, and I had an old mini we used to ride around the farm on as well. And the jumps got bigger and it involved in the end, the mini being brought into this. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we'd seen our very, our very own evil Knievel. Yeah, yeah I think, I think we'd seen, uh, I think we'd watched the white helmets. If anybody remembers yeah, the white yeah, helmets, the Royal yeah. stunt team. Yeah. yeah, we'd watched, we'd watched them doing these sort of stunts and, he was stood on the back of the bike at one time and yeah. we were trying to pull wheelies. Anyway, we did this jump and it, it all went well for so many times over until I think the, the, the takeoff ramp sort of moved and next thing it flipped over, hit the back of the bike and I ended up doing a, trying to do a 360 as I did the thing, but landed upside down with the bike on top of me and broke my arm. So <laughs> oh dear. That, that, that was a stupid thing as a child. And then, Probably as an adult, I seem to remember trying to do a wheelie over a speed hump. Right, and that bucked you, uh, threw you off, did it? Yeah, I was sat on the tarmac and the bike disappeared off to the top <laughs> of the, the road. Where well, at mean, junction and there were a car parked opposite the end of the road and it just went straight into the car and wrote it off, so... Oh, dear. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 have, I have a ridiculous uh, number of stupid things I've done and I... I I don't really talk about them, to be honest. I don't want to incriminate myself. But one thing I am willing to share is something that I did. Again, young man, stupid, you know. I was young. I needed the money. He wasn't that bad. Um, I once flipped an FZR 600 practising one-handed wheelies <laughs> and smashed my bike up. I wasn't too badly hurt, luckily. But, yeah, that's one of the stupid things I did when I was a young man. What about you, Greg? Good question. Thank you. Apart from buying a Harley, and oh. apart from, I mean, obviously, you you dropped the bike on your foot once. That that wasn't that was an accident. That wasn't a deliberate thing that you've gone out and done. I don't suppose you've uh, done anything stu too stupid. Try and keep up with Kenny. Once, well, I, I think Gremlin's done four stupid things, really. <laughs> what, by four, four Harleys? <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll let you off the hook, Gremlin. All right, so next question we have from Ollie, and Ollie tells us he has an R1 track bike and a Hayabusa for the road. So I was going to make fun of him for being a Hayabusa rider and call him a straight liner, but if he's got a track bike as well, I guess he likes going around corners. So, But we've got a plethora of questions. Yes, a plethora of questions from Ollie. Write that down. Um, Ollie's first question is, is there a bike you regret selling? Um and for yeah, him, my three, my, my, my three previous Harley Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's uh, regrets selling. That's only because you lost so much money on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only regrets selling his melee, his RSV thousand melee. Um, but what what have I what, what have I regretted selling? 
I mean, the the GS was was a bike I loved to ride, and you know maybe I should have kept it, but it had seventy two thousand miles on the clock, and it was starting to break. Bits and bobs were going wrong with it, and BMWs are expensive bikes to repair. I mean, I bought. I remember the um, alternator seized one one winter, and uh, even a even a used alternator was thick end of nearly two hundred pounds to 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 buy and. You know, and when things like that start going wrong and they start breaking down, you, you're best off getting rid, aren't you? But, but yeah, so I don't really have any any bikes that I, reg I regret selling. Uh, what about yeah, Gremlin, you? Gremlin does that every six months at service time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and part two of the same question, any you regret buying? That's an interesting question. Any you regret buying? Oh, here we go. Yeah, all four of my Harleys. <laughs> That's what you say, I think the only bike I regret selling was actually an off-road bike, uh, and it was a Mako 490. Mako? Yeah. Uh, proper, you know, 500cc, two-stroke, monster. So why do you regret selling it? Was, it? was it a great bike, was it? Uh, no, it was an awful bike. Was it? But it, Yeah, but, it, you know, I think I sold it for like £1,000, and they're now worth four, £5,000. It's like that from a financial iconic, standpoint. Yeah, that, that iconic era. Any you um, regret buying? Any any bikes you bought no. that you, it would be wonderful and you were really disappointed with? No, because usually usually to buy something, I'd usually test ridden it or borrowed the mates or done something. So yeah, uh, yeah no, nothing. I've I've loved every bike I've owned. There's no doubt about it. But if if, yeah. if I if I had to say I regret buying a bike, it was probably the ZX7. I bought it um, on eBay in an auction, paid about fourteen hundred quid for it. And when it arrived, I mean, I, I bought it just by looking at photos. I never actually saw the bike until it arrived. And when it arrived, it was a real dog. It really needed a lot of work. And I probably, over the course of the next 18 months, spent £1,000 repainting it, buying a new wheel because one of the wheels was buckled, a new under tray because the under tray had been drilled and sawn in half, and a new pipe because the pipe had dents in it. And, you know, just spending £100 here, £250 there, hundred pounds here probably spent a thousand quid so it stood me at two two and a half grand and when i eventually decided to sell it i put it on ebay on an auction and you know what i only got 980 quid for it <laughs> so i lost a thousand quid plus on that bike so if i'm going to say any any bike i regretted buying it's probably the zx7 but i enjoyed riding it while i had it you know yeah. that's, bi that's bikes for you isn't it yeah 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 you don't make money on bikes i don't think generally speaking Oh, right. Okay. Next question from Ollie. Like I said, we have a plethora. Um, there's the next one is says the greatest thing or best moment that's happened due to being, sorry, due to biking, i.e. meeting someone or ending up somewhere special. So apart from you guys meeting me, is there anything that has been as special as that for you? Regrets, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, uh, there's too many. No, I think I'm going to say, I think, Probably one of my the greatest things with the motorbikes is is the people I've met over the years, be it off road or on road. Uh, like I say, probably probably my best friend Thank of you. sort of pushing thirty years now uh, <laughs> came through meeting him on a motorbike, uh, and then oh, it's prison. <laughs> <laughs> that was in that bathhouse, uh, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, just sort of. I think it's just the people over the years, either through racing or 
you know, through just socialising or, you know, through the, you know, the next stage of that for me was, was the masonry side sort of. Was it masonry, masonry that got you into, was it biking that got you into masonry then? No, no, that was. Uh, totally unrelated. Yeah, I'd been interested in masonry for a lot of years, and it was people I knew scuba diving who uh, were masons. Mm. And I, I kept, I kept asking, and then never did anything about it. And then asked again, did nothing about it for a lot of years until eventually, sort of went to a goose and gridiron night, and it sort of went from there. Met, met people who I'd known for twenty years, who were in it, and thought, oh, I didn't know you were a mason. Right. Uh, and that's that, that got me into that. And then obviously from there, people saying, oh, well, there is a motorbike sort of section of the, the Masons. Uh, and then I think it was I met Gremlin at uh, one of his I went to one of his yep. lodge nights uh, yeah. at uh, Harlow just as a as a visitor anyway. Uh, met up with him, spoke to him and I met uh, Mad Manx was there as well. He think he'd yep. just become a member yeah. Uh, the month before, or something like that. So, right, right, uh, yeah. I, I met Mad Manx that night and started riding with us. Yeah, yeah I think that was it. Sort of, I joined up and went from there. The greatest thing about me with motorcycling is buying my wife a motorbike and encouraging her to take her test. Well so said. We well ride said. Out together. So, you yeah. know, for any ladies out there, take your test. It's fantastic. My wife absolutely loves the freedom of being on a motorbike. And, and what bike does she ride out of interest? It's Harley Davidson. It's, there you uh, go. It's a sport. So she's just gone. <laughs> she's just gone from an eight eight three to a sports to twelve hundred T low, and it's really lovely. A lovely bike, and it's a lovely bike for her. She looks so, the part as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah, she's good. So any ladies, out. take your test. It isn't a man's world motorbike. Well, it is, but it's a, a fantastic world for men and women. And it'd be great to see more ladies out there. Definitely. 100% yep. agree. More the merrier. Rather than these ugly buggers I have to look at every I'm day. I'm going to say, I think, I think <laughs> we should allow women in our fraternity because <laughs> well, it, it would certainly improve the uh, scenery. View. Scenery. Yeah. yeah. Careful, we'll get accused of being sexist if you carry on like that. <laughs> Oh yeah. So I mean, as far as as far as me, um, too many, too many. I mean, I've been riding bikes now for God thirty years, and there are too many memories and happy moments on bikes, riding with friends, riding with my brothers in the widow sons, um, crazy stuff, dangerous things that have happened, stories to tell. There's just too many. I, I, you know, bikes have been my life, definitely been part of my life, big part of my life for the last 30 years. And I hope to keep riding for another 30 years. Same here. Mm. Cool, cool. There is one more you question. Will, but, you won't uh, be alive in 30 years, no, you old no. bugger. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, that, I'll, I'll, I'll be in a bath, bath chair, won't I, being pushed around or a trike? We'll be in trikes. We'll be on trikes, won't we? There's, uh, guys, there's one more question, but I suggest we maybe save it for the next episode. Well, actually, I have one question that's come in, and it's from Gwyneth. She's uh, 75, lives in Wales. She thinks that pig pen sounds like a real dish. Well, Gwyneth, no. <laughs> right, okay, guys, let's uh, wrap up the episode. Thank you all. Oh, yeah. 
please uh, to call it a night. <laughs> please send in your emails. We love hearing from you. It'd be great to get some questions. We live for feedback. Um, thoroughly enjoyed the episode uh, this time, guys. Thank you for being on. So I'm going to say goodbye from Yaka and uh, Gremlin. It's good night from him. And, and it's, uh, it's good night from me. Okay. Cheers, guys. And we'll catch you all on the next episode. See you all later. Bye. Bye. See you all later.